tyranny was broken by the sins of the father, and his shepherds finally ceased to roam, seeking instead the simple peace found in the comfort of heart and home. All eyes now turn to his heir and son, who forged their home with his power. Will he be strong enough to lead them in this, their darkest hour? Welcome back to The Lost Tribe, and to the beginning of The Darkest Hour. I am the author and your humble narrator, Peter Ivey. This week we return to the world of The Lost Tribe, and discover what has happened after the stunning conclusion of The Sins of the Pod. If you are enjoying this podcast, please share and subscribe to keep me bringing this story to you. Thank you, and let's begin. Now. A never-ending gray pall hung over the soaring mountain peaks and desperate gulches of Pariah. It was a once-populated world, the people now long gone, ground into the dust by the adverse whim of its creator. The deep malaise of the world threatened to creep into the man's heart as he walked along the path. The road he was on wound its way through a lonely valley that sat in the shadows of the great, dark mountains, and up into the caves where his next challenge lay, waiting. He had long ago discarded the trappings of his old life as a petty criminal. Gone were the expensive suits, the fine shoes, and the delicately sculpted locks of the cheap hustler, always looking to score. They had been replaced by a dark vest over a rough spun jerk, durable jeans underneath boiled leather, a pair of army-issue boots, tough, dark leather gloves, and long hair and a beard as black as a moonless night. He carried no weapon, as he used to for he now needed nothing save his own mind to destroy his enemy. His strides were sure and brisk as he ascended the path as it rose up into the caves. As he entered the great gaping mouth of the entrance, a maw of broken granite teeth that yawned wide for his flesh, he closed his eyes and drew upon his strength and power. He opened them, which now emitted a strange and ghastly blue light, and twin halos of darkness formed around his hands. He held them out to his sides as he walked forward, grinning with the thrill of what was to come. The cave sloped downward, and ended in a great chasm around which an edging of rough stones formed a ring of handholds, broken paths, and crude parapets. The path wound ever downward into a sightless abyss. The man knew every handhold, every curve of the path, and each pitfall where he might plunge to his death. He had learned the ways of the cave and knew them like he knew his own heart. This was a place of monsters. This was where he belonged. He screamed his challenge into the darkness. The sound of his boldness echoed for ages or so it seemed. Slowly, one by one, there came the cries and wails of the monsters, some passionate and angry, others miserable and annoyed, but all united in a singular devotion to hunger and the hunt. The man did not step slowly, but ran down the slope into the pit. He knew the path and knew where to hide if necessary, but he had no concern for his own safety. Come and get it! He screamed. He leapt off the edge, opening his arms wide to welcome the darkness. This was all he wanted. Exultation! Freedom! Most of all, revenge. The darkness that he sought detached from one of the smooth slopes where it had been slumbering before the man shouted his defiance into the great abyss. It reached out with its claws to seize him and swallow him whole, 
but before it could devour him, the man grabbed its neck and swung up onto its back. The wild and dark creature cried out in frustration as the strong hands of the man dug into its scales and pulled back with strength well beyond what it had expected. The man's hands flowed into the murky and pervasive energy of his mind now, and he reached past the hard, opalescent scales of the monster and dove deep into its body. The beast soared up out of the abyss and towards the roof of the cavern, meaning to crush him and rid itself of its frightening burden. The man laughed and twisted his hold with such force that the creature changed direction to avoid the agony. It flew like an arrow at the great entrance to the caves. The man reached further now, past the purely physical component, and into the deep and terrible mind of the monster itself. He clung into its neck as they shot out of the cave together and began to climb into the sky. He yearned to reach out and touch the fierce elation that it must feel whenever the sky beckoned, and the monster stretched its great black wings out upon the great canvas of the clouds. There! It was there in its mind beneath the endless night of the twin souls where the birthright of the great winged race, the writhing cacophony of its fellow brood, devour and thrive, the years of being trapped in this barren world. He could feel his despair, and he knew that ache in his own heart. He reached out with his mind and soothed this pain with the fire of vengeance that raged at its very core. The wraith gladly received the gift, and they became one, as if the man was the beast, and the beast knew his soul as well. Its eyes glowed with the same cold light, and they howled in triumph together as they soared in the grey skies over the mountains. Far below, in the darkness of the caves, the minds of the other wraiths received the singular gift from the mind of their hungry, elated broodmate and cried out in unholy agreement with its newfound joy. They took wing as well and sought the open sky. Along the path far from the cave, a legion of men and women raised their hands in victory and shouted their exultation at the sky. A lone rider on a wraith soared through the sky and behind him were a dozen or so others. They followed his lead, moving as one as they flowed across the grey backdrop of Pariah's sky. The men and women were organized in a great camp that spread across the plains. Dozens upon dozens of tents, arrayed in circles around a central plateau where a large tent had been erected. Every man was the same, dark-haired and dark-eyed with pale skin, as were the women. They all resembled each other in facial features and build. There were no fires, for none of those arrayed inside the camp needed the warmth. Instead, all eyes now looked to the large tent. Standing in front of it were two figures, a man and a woman. The man stood three steps behind her. The woman had ghostly pale skin and dark red hair underneath a heavy black cloak with a hood that fell about her shoulders and down to her ankles. The rest of her body was wrapped in a filmy darkness that caressed every inch of her flesh up to her neck. It flowed and swam across her body. Her eyes were black and deep as well water, and tinged with a pale blue light that belonged to the swirling gases of cosmic nebulae. She smiled up at the sky as she beheld the rider and his train. Her companion was a well-built young man with a broad chest sandy-haired and cut short, with a beard of similar trim and coloring. He wore a cloak similar to hers, but it was not hooded. He wore heavy, gilded plate armor underneath, over heavy chain. His hands were encased in massive, plated gauntlets, and they rested upon the pommel of a two-handed heavy mace with a spiked head that sat upon the ground. He leaned on his weapon, watching the spectacle of the rider and the wraiths. His look was not joyous as hers was, but grim and brooding. You must be very proud. I should you, she replied. You've guided him and refined his power to this point. I can only imagine what it would have been like if you'd done the same for all of us. 
That was not my plan. Neither was this, but it seems I have little choice. She turned to him, the darkness sliding across her flesh. Her hand settled over his gauntlets, and she raised her chin when she addressed him. You've helped our cause, hiding us here. Our warriors owe you their lives. Warriors. I see only drones. Empty shells would be nothing without your mind uniting theirs. These drones will win you back your throne. At a price. All things come with a price. He shrugged off her hands and hoisted the mace over his shoulder. You don't need to remind me of that. She smirked and retreated. She gazed up into the sky and watched as the rider wheeled about. She could now feel his elation through the bond they shared. The wraith was there too, and she yearned to feel its soul herself. You help. I will hold up the end of our bark. You will have what you want. Oh, I know that you will. You have no choice, old man. Our fortunes are bound. The rider turned in the sky and headed down towards the camp. The wraiths in tow followed him down. The usurper must fall, he said, watching the rider dismount from the wraith. That is our bond. I do not believe in fortune, Penny. I believe in plans. The rider made his way through the camp quickly, being clapped on the shoulders and cheered on by the warriors. Each beheld him with admiration and a strange sort of love they inherited from their queen. Her first knight, her paramour, mounted the slope of the plateau and she took his hand in her own. They looked into each other's eyes, a knowing smile playing across their faces, and they turned back to their companion. Then, let us begin ours. A roaring sound issued from the cave in the distance. A huge shadow erupted from the mouth of the cave, a form that was larger and more developed than its dark children. His neck was long and its skeletal head massive. Its wings stretched across the whole of the world, it seemed. All eyes were on it as it screamed in fury and flew over the camp, trailing the bones and debris of years spent in seclusion upon the gathering throng. The man in gilded armor watched as several shards fell upon him, and he swept them off with his heavy hand. As you say, let us begin. Chapter 1 It was morning on home. I had aligned the passing of the day and night long ago with the spinning worlds to ensure that everything happened in real time. The same sun that shone so brightly in the solar system where the worlds existed shone on home as well. I had walked through the lush green hills in the mid-morning sun along the well-worn path to the river. There were no clouds in the sky, and the feel of the sun on my skin renewed me, as it had on all days when I escaped the beauty of these hills. There were times when I took all this for granted— as if it had already been here. It still amazed me that I had made all of this happen. In my moment of divinity, I had brought all of this into reality, designing each curve of every hill, each blade of grass and flowing stream to life. That moment was long gone now, nearly six years in the past when I took the mantle of Father's power and made good in the promise he made to us on my own. It made me smile to think of those first few weeks, how happy Casey and I were then. So much more followed as we all learned that it was possible for us to have children. And our son, Flynn, was born. It was as if all the good that we intended for the worlds had coalesced into a person. We had no other children, not for lack of trying, mind you, but I think simply because all of what we wanted for both ourselves and our people was a sense of continuity, and maybe a sign that our humanity was intact. We had all found those things in Flynn. He was a good kid, although at times he followed after me a bit too much, 
He had my curiosity, my brown hair, and his mother's fearless gaze whenever he put his mind to doing something he most wanted. But that wasn't what worried me about Flynn. To all appearances, he was a ten-year-old boy, tall for his age and quick-witted. What no one outside our circle knew was the fact that Flynn was only five years old. We knew something was wrong when he spoke after only three months, and was on his feet in six. He seemed to have no problem reading or absorbing language, almost as if he was born with the abilities. We had all taken turns educating him, although uncles Henry and Decoum had taken on the largest part of those duties. For Casey and I, it was hard to know what to do. For people like us, there was really not much to go on. But we had lived and learned and tried our best to understand our nature. For Flynn, there was no way to know what was best. He was something entirely new in the universe, a child born of our little tribe of extraordinary people. We vowed to each other to do all that we could to teach him about who we are. Everything was simple, until his powers started emerging. It worried me with all my responsibilities and Flynn's power emerging, how I could be out on some errand trying to help one of the worlds when he needed me. It scared me to imagine Flynn running into the kind of trouble that all of us did when we first started gaining our power. Bloody hell, we all nearly died acquiring it in the first place. Yet it seemed that Flynn had it already, as if Casey and I had poured some of our energies into him. I could hear the river rushing along now, the sound carrying across the quiet morning to me across the short distance to the east where the valley began. I could have just popped over there without a second thought, but I found more and more these days that I needed the walk to sort things out. It wasn't all I needed, but you take what you can get when time and chance allow. This morning was our time, though, and I'll be damned if my duties were going to strip it away. Flynn wasn't really an issue when we needed to get away. My father had come to live with us in the castle, Hearth, after I had learned that my mother and sisters had abandoned him in Pretty, and he kept a careful eye on Flynn. He had waited for me to return after I disappeared that fateful day out in the ocean. I had learned then what I truly was, and carelessly left all that I knew behind. I had begged him to come live with us, to make up for it. I even asked my mother, but she had moved on from my father in the way of life that he lived. My sisters had their own lives, and they were content. I needed my father, and it suited him to accompany Flynn on his adventures around hearth and home. He had even taken Flynn sailing with him on a lake that I had fashioned. I hoped that Flynn would come to understand the allure of the water, to understand why both his father and his grandfather had taken to it with such wild abandon. Casey would kill me, of course, if someday Flynn took off to sail on the open sea to seek his fortune. I had a feeling, though, that when Flynn decided what he wanted to do with the time that was given to him, that we wouldn't be able to stop him. I arrived at the clearing near the stream. There were old stumps arrayed around the remains of a campfire around the overhanging boughs of willow trees that grew along the river. A few small birds flittered back and forth across the trees, scouting for grubs and calling to each other as I strolled over to one of the stumps and sat down. I set the picnic basket I brought with me on the ground at my side. I shrugged off my long brown coat with a fur collar, a remnant of my adventuring days, and I folded it over my knee. I rolled up the cuffs of my white shirt and pulled off my high leather boots. Sighing, I dug my feet into the grass and felt the wet dew of it that the sun had not dried up. I folded my arms over my knees and watched the water as it drifted, slowly and purposefully, along the clearing. The sun had filtered through the hanging branches and danced on the surface of the water. The liquid shapes of flickering light left after images on my eyes as I watched them cavort in the water. Is this some kind of illusion, love? Or are you actually enjoying yourself? I turned to see Casey strolling down the path, her dark tresses resting easily on her tan shoulders. She was dressed simply but elegantly, in a light blue blouse and a pair of her old jeans that had been with her longer than we'd been together. 
She had long ago gotten rid of her guns in favor of a knife that she kept in a sheath at her hip. After the horrors that she had experienced, and the birth of our son, she had given them up. Since that time, she had learned how to channel her power entirely into healing others, rather than dealing death. Many people across all of the worlds were grateful for Casey's compassion and strength during the calamities that we had all weathered. Motherhood agreed with her, and I pitied the person who got between her and Flynn. She had not diminished in her capacity for wrath, but instead tempered it and channeled it to better use. Without her and Flynn, I'd be lost. I stood up and met her at the edge, where the sun still shone on her. <laughs> it's no illusion, although I've heard it said on the worlds that all this might just be that. She came into my arms, and I kissed her. And if it is? Oh, I'm good with that. Oh, except that uh, you know for sure, don't you? She said, tapping me on the nose. Maybe, I said, smirking. But I'll never tell. She chuckled. I took her hand and led her down to a pair of stumps. Flynn is very excited about heading to Caledon tomorrow, she said, taking my hand. I wish I could share in his enthusiasm. Oh, it's just an interview, Mick. I think you faced tougher challenges before. Uh-huh. You know, I'd rather be trapped in a pool of barbecue sauce fighting Felkir with a butter knife than go to that damn show. Tell me why I'm doing this again. Well, it's the anniversary of when you showed yourself, and it's a chance to talk to them, Mick. You said you need to talk directly to the people again. That's possible in Caledon. Oh, yeah. The same Caledon where I was run over by a taxi forcibly confined to a hospital bed with a catheter shoved in me, and then hunted by the kingdom's minions. Mm, good times. It's so weird that I don't want to go back there with such fond memories. Casey turned away and strolled over to a tree near the water. You're sounding awfully tired lately, love. Tired and a little scared. What the hell do we have to be afraid of? What well, we can't see coming. Man, come on. We've saved entire populations from floods, earthquakes, droughts, civil wars, forest fires even a meteor. I just can't get why you've been on everybody's ass so much. I hate to admit that Casey was right. I had been very vigilant lately, more than I have ever been since we took control of the worlds. I just couldn't shake the feeling that something bad was coming for us, and that we shouldn't get comfortable. Ever since I became aware of the other worlds on that day at sea, I've always gone with the idea that change is inevitable. It was coming. And if you didn't look for it, and prepare yourself, it would roll right over you like the tide. One fear, though, stuck out amongst all the others, and I needed to say something to Casey. Maybe this was the time. I went over to her and took her hand. There's a reason I've been worried lately. Flynn is becoming like us. He's developing power. I expected her to slap me in the face. Instead, she put one hand to her mouth and laughed a little. Oh, shit, you know this already? She reached out and poked her finger at my chest. You, of all people, should be quicker, Mick. Of course he's got powers. You and I do, so why not him? But you and I were shepherds. We have the powers because we have their souls. How the hell does Flynn have them? I don't know. But have you seen him jump? In my mind, I flashed on the image of Flynn leaping along the ground while he was sleepwalking, with Henry and I in tow at a discreet distance. I also remembered how he tried to open the door to a place I'd rather have him not go, or even know about. How he knew about that is one of the reasons I was alarmed. As far as I knew before Flynn's little jaunt, no one except me knew that that door existed. Or could access it. I had warned Flynn away, but he knew that that door was there. I felt guilty about not letting the others know about it. 
it was kind of doubtful that they would understand about what it represented, and I wasn't about to show them. Flynn almost had it open. Oh, I've seen Flynn in action. It won't be long before it can fly, right? Not if I can help it. One flying family member's enough, you know. I figure I'll put a ball and chain on his ankle if I have to. <laughs> Hope it doesn't come to that. How long have you known about the sleepwalking? Oh, about a month, she said, taking off her hat. I caught him walking the halls, and he mumbled something and raised his hand as if he was trying to open a portal. I took his hand and walked him back to the bed. I guess we'll have to keep a closer eye on him. You, me, and Henry? Oh, you know about that too. Henry's got a taste for wine and a low pain threshold. Never underestimate a mother's resolve, my love. Okay. And stop keeping secrets. I don't like it. Hmm. Yes, ma'am. Don't you call me ma'am. I stepped back from her and folded my arms. Tough talk, lady. Yeah? Oh, yeah. Big words. Care to back them up? I produced two oak practice swords from the picnic basket, throwing in a little magician's flair by porting them in from where I'd stashed them behind the trees. I took one in a firm grip and raised it to her in challenge. I tossed her the other. She caught it and twirled it around in one hand. You know, I hate to do this. I can heal your wounds, but I can't do anything for your pride. She moved in quick with a flurry of low to high blows and swept in to try to take my leg up from under me. I parried her and leapt to one side, lightly tapping her on the ass as I went by. She grinned and came at me again, striking me from on high, trying to batter me down. I swung at her, trying to bring my sword in a light arc to the diagonal, trying to disarm her. She dropped into a crouch, took the sword in both hands, and leapt forward, head over heels, and a drop kick that sent me sprawling backwards. I landed on my back. I rolled to the right as she came down on her knees with a two-handed coup de gras. I came up and put my blade across the back of her neck. Whose pride was that? She swept out with her leg, pivoted on one knee, and tried to sweep my legs. I did a quick jump forward, using my sword to push her over onto her back. She flailed with her arms, and I tackled her flat into the ground. Her sword was thrown clear, so I used mine to pin her arms. There is no shame in surrender. She leaned in and kissed me, wetly, licking out with her tongue across my lips. Oh, wow. Then she flipped me over, took my sword, and straddled me with a point at my throat. I could feel the warmth of her against me, and I knew I was undone. Hell, the kiss was enough to break any man. How's your pride doing? It's doing well from where I'm positioned. I don't think I'm on the losing end. She smirked and drove the wooden blade into the earth next to my head. Next time, I'll have you. You could have me now, if you like. I put my arms around her and held her close. What do you say? Oh, I know I'm a cheap date, Mick. But I'm kind of hungry, too. It was my turn to smile. I looked to the right of us, a few feet away. She followed my gaze. There was a striped blue and white blanket stretched over a patch of ground near the water. On it was a bottle of wine, opened, with two glasses poured and ready, set on a small wooden tray with a neat plate of sliced meats, cheese, and fruit on the side. A loaf of fresh rye bread was steaming in the cool morning air in a small basket next to the tray. Were you doing that at the same time we were fighting? Would you be pissed if I said yes? She blinked and shook her head. I pushed myself up a bit and touched her arm. Is everything okay? She took my hand and looked in my eyes. Sometimes I forget that you have so much power, Mick. And sometimes I wish you didn't. I wish you could feel how damn scary it is. How scary what is? To know that the person you love can do all this, can do anything you want. 
All I want is for you and Flynn to be safe and happy, Casey. My power allows me to do just that. Just promise me one thing, okay? Don't let it go to your head. You've hung on with it for so long now, and I don't want it to consume you. I took her cheek in my hand and kissed her. It won't, and I promise you that I won't let it. Good. I'd hate to let anything spoil our fun today. Perish the thought, I said, leading her over to the blanket. We drunk deeply under the boughs and let the delights of the morning linger on into the afternoon. Not to put too fine a point on it, but it's a damn good feeling to know that you have a place you can go where you can do anything you want and be assured that no one will mess with you. Hence, as I stood naked to my waist in the river, I felt tremendously good. It had a lot to do with being alone with Casey. We'd both been so busy these past few weeks that I'd hardly seen her. The same could be said for Flynn and my father. Henry DeCum and I had been scouring the worlds, looking for any sign of the others. Henry had developed a special machine that we could use from home to try and detect signs of our special energy. But it wasn't quite working yet. I could see all of that if I used the full range of my senses. But I couldn't do that all the time. It was extremely draining. And my power was not infinite. There were still a lot of questions that we had about the fate of the others, after the war with Menon. So far, as we moved from world to world, we had found no sign of them at all. Not in all these years. It was as if something had just swallowed them up. You think it too hard again, love? Casey's naked body brushed up behind me, and she put her arms around my waist and across my chest. Force of habit, I guess. I know a habit that we could both indulge in. Her hands moved down my chest and into the water. I'm up for a repeat performance, I said, reaching behind to kiss Casey's hungry lips. A voice boomed out from above us. Well, good afternoon indeed. I pulled Casey fully behind me and looked up to see Henry on his hover disc. The hover disc was a bronze round platform with five small engines. They glowed with energy arrayed equally around the disc. There was a pole in the middle that ended waist high in handlebars with simple controls for speed, braking, and whatever other damn thing that Henry wanted the hover disc to do. Henry leaned on the handlebars and ogled us. He was dressed in his black lab coat, his navy slacks, and his blue and black checkered vest with brass snaps over a white shirt with a puffed-out collar. His wild, white hair was, as always, in stark contrast to the tidy and stylish clothes he wore. Stylish, hovering, bastard. It wasn't until you showed up. Get out of here, Henry, Casey shouted, laughing. Oh, I wouldn't be here in person if both of you hadn't ignored your medallions. The medallions were an invention of Henry's. A bronze disc the size of one's hand inlaid with silver and sapphires. He had made them all for us years ago to communicate with each other across the worlds. As long as the medallion was worn by the person you intended to speak with, you could get their attention by speaking their name. It was some kind of mind lick as far as I understood it, and people thought I was a god. Henry's power and brilliance was staggering sometimes. These devices worked the way they do, simply because that's exactly how Henry used his power to make them work that way. Very scary. But then again, who was I to talk? And us done answering, that didn't clue you in? <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. Just meet me up on the trail and I'll explain. Something's happening in New Haven. Damn it. Harkold okay? That's the problem. He's missing. Harkold Link was my representative on New Haven. New Haven has always been corrupt, and the little bandit kingdoms there are always fighting for control of some commodity or another. Two of those kingdoms, Barolm and Seahold, had been at each other's throats for the last few months, and Harkold had been meeting with the leaders in an attempt to make some kind of peace. I had a feeling that effort went sour. Luckily, there was a pretty short list of people bold or stupid enough to defy me. I took Casey's hand and led her to the shore. If someone's hurt that old man, Mick, you're going to have to get in line behind me. 
she said, drawing herself off. I'll make sure that he's okay, I promise. She kissed me on the cheek and started putting on her jeans. See you later, love. As I walked out of the clearing, my clothes materialized on my body, complete with my long coat with a leather hood, and a pair of thick black gloves with shining plates across the backs appeared on my hands. I willed my sword, which I had come to call Hearthblade, to appear over my coat in a scabbard strapped to my back. The sword had become known as my badge of authority across the worlds, and the outfit I wore had become my persona, the visage of the patron. Now that I was dressed, I abandoned the ground entirely, leapt into the air. In a few moments, I landed next to Henry at the rise of the valley, where the trail started its descent. Henry stepped off his hover disc and joined me. When was the last time anybody heard from him? Eight hours ago or so. Are we going in, guns blazing as it were? Why would you say that? You're dressed for war, Mick. It's a tactic, Henry. I can't show up there looking any less the figure of authority than I'm supposed to be. They've already defied me once if they've taken Harkold. Anything less than going in there looking like I'm going to crush them will be seen as weakness. Do you want my help? No, I've got this one. Wouldn't want you giving up any state secrets on me. Henry ruffled through his hair and grinned. She told you? Yeah, she did. You two didn't look like you were fighting, though. She already knew. Oh, look, Mick, I'm sorry about last week, too. That reporter caught me. Caught you at a bad moment? Tell me about it. Let's talk later at the hearth, okay? He nodded his head and got back on the disc. Good luck, Mick. Henry took off into the sky and flew off towards hearth. Chapter 2 The desert wasteland that once was a part of a great civilization on New Haven stretched across untold kilometers in every direction, crisscrossing the world's axis, one side always in the night, the other perpetually baking in the sun. The remains of the cities on the planet's unfortunate sun side glittered like the scoured bones of the unwary travelers who underestimated the merciless, unblinking eye. The old buildings were long gone, faded and crumbled under the beating sun and the scouring winds, the broken towers of glass and steel still twinkling in the sandy sea. Across that sea marched the armies of the last two rival city-states, the victors in the ongoing wars that had bankrupted the population and squandered the remaining resources. The heat of those conflicts had driven deep the rivalries between the cities, breeding a hatred that only propaganda and blood could conjure. It was out there in the sweltering sand dunes, the sacred battleground for such dust-ups, that the armies would meet to finish the matter and the sands would drink the soldiers' blood. The sands didn't care. Thousands upon thousands had already fallen to its thirsty, crystalline palate, and yet still it hungered for more. The armies of Barome and Seahold were evenly matched. Both had terrifying war machines in their ranks, lumbering alongside the marching rank and file. The soldiers were as numerous as the blades of grass that had once grown so fervently before the desert had swept in and devoured it all. Some bore savage weapons such as swords, axes, and halberds, while others carried the rifles and heavy cannons that had become scarce since the Great Tilt. Each army had scrounged all they could to finish this last piece of ugly business. They had drawn battle lines, and now each army stood waiting on either end of a wide valley, a bowl of rock and sand to swallow them whole. Inside the Barome tent, as it was for Seahold, the war party made its plans for the attack. Harkold Link, the representative of the Patron of the Worlds, sat in a chair and waited for the inevitable to begin. The leader of Barome, President Axel Ferris had chained him to the support post of the tent close to the table where he and his generals were busy planning the demise of Seahold's army. Harkold had suggested the Barome lay down their arms, shut down their war machines, and return to their city with the promise that Seahold would do just the same. Barome was not hot on the idea, 
and decided to chain him up instead. Harkold had warned the patron that the two saints were intractable, but he had insisted that something needed to be done. Well, here I am, Mick, he mused. An old man chained to a post with no recognized authority and no hope for rescue. No one even knew he was here, and the president had taken the medal that Mick had given him to communicate with. Not many knew what that medal was for, save it was a badge of office, and it was a direct insult to the patron to have it taken away. He watched President Ferris and his men, and cursed them silently for being so foolish. Ferris caught his sullen glare and sauntered over to him, a silver goblet of wine in his hand. Don't look so grim, old man. Today is going to be a glorious day for Barome, and for New Haven itself. We are going to drive those wretches from Seahold, from the planet itself. The president was in his late fifties, with thinning black hair and a large bushy beard that had turned a deep iron gray. Polished medals from past victories gleamed on his puffed-out chest. His white greatcoat clung tightly to his aging and sagging frame. He had always been a man of power, although many said that he had been a criminal before the tilt, and had used his criminal contacts to put himself into the position in the chaos that ruled the roost afterward. Harkold had not known the man then, but he had learned much about him since. You're both making a very dangerous mistake at turning against the wishes of the patron, Ferris. It won't end well. By the time our glorious patron realizes what is happening, this will all be over. He was a soldier himself, I understand, before he... Ferris made a drifting gesture and fluttered his fingers upward. So I would imagine that he understands the need for such acts. If you're so sure, why take away my medal? Deprive me of my badge of office? Face it, Ferris. None of your attempts to reason this out matter. None of our worlds, not even Trelane, have a population as dwindled as ours. The patron wants us to thrive in peace, and you're driving our people to war with your self-serving nonsense. I doubt you even understand what power you've stepped in. Ferris raised his glass to Harkhold. To victory, old man. He drank deeply and turned back to the table where his generals were plotting away. Harkhold shook his head. This will not end well. He almost fell off his chair when a gloved hand reached around from behind and closed over his mouth. Harkhold panicked for a moment, but then a voice spoke in a whisper. Any place you'd rather be right now, old man? The hand let go of him and receded. Harkhold grinned. I'm sorry, patron. They wouldn't listen. It's okay. I should have known better, Harkhold. I should have listened to you. And so? Mm? Where can I send you, my friend? Home. Mine or yours? Ah, I think yours would be best. I don't think I'm going to be too popular when I return to mine. Besides, your wife's cooking is better than mine. No doubt. Home it is, then. Harkold vanished, leaving a set of empty manacles, an empty chair, and a group of Barome soldiers who knew perhaps that the jig was, well and truly, up. As the sun surged in the sky, the armies of Barome and Seahold surged forward in the valley, readying their wicked weapons banging the drums of war. The engines of war, great tanks and cannons, rolled onward, growling and grinding with anticipation as their crews rejoiced inside their metal shells at the chance to put their skills to use. President Ferris rode a large tracked vehicle bristling with guns and belching smoke into the desert air from the angry, belabored engines. He had put in a high peat cap with a golden ruby sunburst at its center, the symbol Barome, to inspire his men to victory. Seahold, not to be outdone, had come to the field as well, sporting a vast legion of light motorized vehicles festooned with spikes and flame cannons to vaporize and impale the tender flesh of the enemy. Soldiers with rifles galloped alongside them on the backs of camels and horses. 
their twinkling bands of ammunition over their blue sashes sanding in contrast to the bleak landscape they rode through. Emperor Leopold Tyler, leader of Seahold, sauntered along at the head of his forces surrounded by an entourage of men with flame cannons and sabers horse. He was mounted on a heavy beast, a rare elephant with tusks and laid with sapphire and silver, and a harness to keep the great saddle that Emperor Tyler sat upon in place. Tyler was also armored and armed, and led his people with a jeweled scepter that acted as both a symbol of office and a legendary truncheon. From on high I watched them. They swarmed like ants into the valley, as if it were a giant sugar bowl. At that moment, my most fervent desire was to be back with Casey at the stream. It was very bloody hot up here, but I knew that they wouldn't see me. I had taken a few moments after setting back Harkle to let myself chill out. But now, seeing what these idiots were about to do, I felt a familiar sense of rage swirl and bubble in my gut. On one hand, obliterating them from the planet wouldn't really help anyone. But it would give me a lot of pleasure at the moment to blow them to atoms. That was a tad too wrathful, and didn't fit with the idea of what my role in this society should be. I was much happier facilitating peace and preventing disasters from behind the scenes. The armies were closing on each other in the valley, and would soon be in range to open fire. It was time to step in. I landed in the middle of the valley, a few kilometers away from the armies. They undoubtedly saw me as I descended. Good. Let them see. I scoured the sand beneath my feet until only the bare stone remained, and shaped the rock into a polished floor. I poured it in three comfortable chairs, one from the estate of each leader, and the third from my own sitting room and hearth. I sat down and unsheathed my sword, hearthblade. I placed it across my knees. Hearthblade was my reworking of the sword that father had given me. I'd replaced the line in the hilt with a bright sunburst motif. The blade itself was much closer than the style used by my friend Otomo in battle a long curved blade with an extended hilt for more precise control. I had learned how to use it properly in the intervening years since Otomo's death, and often thought of his peerless quality as a warrior whenever I carried the blade into battle. Otomo had died while destroying one of the horrifying dark creations of our mortal enemy, an ex-shepherd turned hateful demigod called Manon. Otomo had killed the kraken that had risen to destroy my hometown from the inside, hacking and slashing at anything vital he could find until the monster simply collapsed. He had been infected by the darkness that spawned Manon and his minions, and had died on the shore once expelled from the guts of the monster. He had been a casualty of the secrets the father had kept from all of us about our humble beginnings as shepherds, and the tragedy that twisted Manon into the revenge-driven psychopath that nearly despoiled all the worlds. This blade was a symbol of Otomo's sacrifice, a reminder of what had been paid for all that I was trying to preserve now. I could hear the machines drawing closer now. I extended my will into the battlefield. A moment later, Leopold and Ferris appeared in the chairs I had provided for them. Each looked around wildly until they saw each other, and then me. I must protest this crude hijacking patron, Ferris sputtered. I hate to agree with my colleague patron, but this is none of your concern, Leopold said calmly. This dispute is between the city-states of New Haven, and is not for you to stop us from settling it. I spun my blade so it faced downward and struck it into the hard stone. It sunk in a few inches. Leopold nearly jumped out of his seat. Ferris went white and stared at my sword as it hummed slightly with the impact. When I sent my envoy to you, an old man that I greatly respect, you sent him away, Leopold, and then you, Ferris, had the audacity to imprison him. Did you not understand my decree? Ferris had collected himself and responded first. We heard your suggestion, patron, but... It was not a suggestion, Ferris cringed. Your world is a mess, gentlemen. New Haven is one of several worlds whose population is being slowly ground to the dust. In this case, your wars and your political intrigues are spilling so much blood that you'll soon have no one left to rule. Perhaps I exaggerate slightly, 
But regardless of the situation, I have decreed that all the world stay at peace to rebuild and to thrive. New Haven is doing neither of these things. I'm certain that you two assholes are at the heart of this lack of growth. Rome is encroaching on our sovereign rights as a city-state. And Seahold has proven time and again they cannot keep to an agreement without any clever misuse. The two men began to bicker bitterly. How like children they swiftly became. Then again, I bet Flynn would be better behaved, by far, than either of these puffed-up blowhards. I could be back in Casey's arms beside a cool river with the sun at our backs, but I am here instead. The whole angry god bit was getting a lot more traction in my head with each moment. Shut up. Both men stopped talking, and stared at me as if they just realized that I was there again. I pointed at Ferris. Withdraw your troops. Ferris sputtered again, and Leopold chuckled. You too, Seahold. Pull back. I will do no such thing. Ferris glowered at us both. If he's not leaving, then neither am I, patron. How like children you both are. Spoiled brats with too many bloody toys. I snapped my fingers. Everywhere across the battlefield, each blade, each gun, each truncheon, and every other damn thing they could use to kill each other with had vanished, only to be replaced with a plastic baton that ended in a big lump of rubber foam. They were colored red for Barome and blue for Seahold. The large war machines became pink balloons, which floated immediately up into the desert sky. I provided the crew with batons, though. It was only fair, after all. Ferris looked with disdain at the baton he held in his hand. Leopold felt around at his back for whatever weapon he had concealed, and retrieved a bright blue feather. He blinked twice and seemed to be on the verge of madness. Enjoy your war, then, gentlemen, with my blessing. I doubt that either of you are much for fisticuffs, but perhaps you can find some ways of killing each other with what I've given you. Thank you for your cooperation, and I bid you good day. I ascended into the air waving goodbye to the shouting angry fools down below me. I bumped at one of the pink balloons as it floated up beside me, and I sent it tumbling away. Sometimes it was wonderful to have power. Thank you all for listening and supporting this podcast. Remember to join me next week for another episode of The Lost Tribe, Darkest Hour. And remember... Stay safe and stay healthy.